Hello, my friends. Thanks, guys, for listening. Uh, this is the Otherwise Podcast. I'm your host, Casey Tigret. I'm an author, a pastor, and a spiritual director, and the host of this here podcast. So glad you're tuning in. It is late in Chicagoland as I record this. Uh, my wife is watching something on Netflix, and I'm here talking to you about today's conversation with my friend Jerusalem Greer. Uh this is going to be good. I, I hope you enjoy this, man. I had so much fun talking to her. Jerusalem is a licensed Episcopal lay minister. She is a preacher. She is a blogger. She is a writer. She's written two very good books that I provided the links for in the notes to the show. You can go ahead and check those out on Amazon. I won't spend time on that now because I want to get to the conversation with my friend, Jerusalem Greer. Jerusalem, hey. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we're talking and you're in Arkansas, correct? Yes, that's correct. I am. And Arkansas, Arkansas has been home for how long? Oh, wow. So I moved here to go to college. My family, my parents are originally from here. So I had lived here briefly as a little child. Um, but I came back to go to college many moons ago. So we're, going, we're, we're over two decades at this point. Oh, my. Are you sure yeah. you want to disclose that to the general public? I know. Well, you know, if you're going to be a truth teller, you have to go first. <laughs> if you're going to ask people to share their truth, you got to share yours. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> we embrace, embrace the birthdays that have gone by. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, okay. So first and foremost, Jerusalem, is that an Arkansas name? Is that a common name or where does it come from? <laughs> okay. Um, my parents were Christian hippies and... Uh, my dad is from Arkansas. My parents are from Arkansas. And my dad's name is Johnny Joe Jackson Jr. Yeah, it is. is yeah, it is. And that's four J's. And my mother, who had recently become a Christian when she, um, right, at, right before she became pregnant with me, she had just become a Christian and she decided she wanted all her children's names to be out of the Bible, but she wanted them to all start with J. And I was the first. So, uh, my name's Jerusalem, and then my siblings are Joshua, Jemima, and Judea. My goodness. Yeah. Do you know where Jemima is in the Bible? I w- you know, this is a moment where I so wish I had this already recalled, but I have <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know the address. <laughs> Nobody does. And I have asked this to rooms full of ordained people. And no one has ever gotten this. So it's really fun. Um, I feel like it's like one of the things they get to educate the world on. So in Job, when Job gets a new family at the end, one of his daughter's name is Jemima. The, the only thing, I, of course, the response is always, I have pancakes? Am I? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So does she, no, have, so, is she okay, an aunt? Right? Does she have an apron? She is. She is an aunt. She does own many aprons. And my children do call her Aunt Jemima. Oh, so good. Because they don't know any different. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, they don't know any different. First time I brought home Aunt Jemima pancake syrup, like I said, it, they were big. They were, I don't know, they were like six and ten. Because that wasn't usually, I don't know why, that's not the brand we usually bought. But for some reason, I had it, and I put it down on the table. And my youngest looked at it and squinted his eyes, and he said, Aunt Jemima? I have an Aunt Jemima. <laughs> so, like, his Aunt Jemima came first. 
All right. So living in Arkansas, bearing the name yep. of the legendary city, uh, but you're mm-hmm. also an Episcopal lay. Give me the right title here. Yes. Okay. So I am a lay minister in the Episcopal Church. Okay. Um, and so that means non-ordained in the Episcopal church, there are only three ordinations and they're pretty, um, it's a little tough to get ordained in the Episcopal church. It's a little bit of a rigorous process. So you can be ordained to be a deacon. You can be ordained to be a priest and you can be ordained to be a bishop. Um, but the majority of the work in the Episcopal church is done by lay ministers or the lay people. So. so what led you into that tradition? I, it strikes me that I, you didn't grow up Episcopal, just no. from our conversations. Yeah, no. So I come from, on my mom's side, there's some there's Presbyterian and Assembly of God, but the majority of my roots are on from my dad's side, which is Southern Baptist. And I come from a long line of Southern Baptist ministers. My dad, uncles, great uncles, grandfather so forth and so on. Cousins, I mean, long line of Southern Baptist ministers. So that's how I was raised. Um, My dad was a little bit more progressive in some areas and open to new ideas. And we actually ended up in Juneau, Alaska for my adolescent years, where he was the pastor of First Baptist Juneau. And Juneau in Alaska is at least in the 80s, was pretty unchurched compared to like the Bible Belt where I am now. They're just, you know, here there will literally be a church on every corner. Like if you stop at a four-way stop, you can look and there's a church on every corner. And there, there was just a handful of churches in a town. And so, you know, even in the capital city, there's just a handful. And so it seemed as if people would come to that church as kind of a melting pot. You didn't come specifically because it was your denomination, you ended up at a church because you liked the church. Mm. So you would end up with people from Methodist background and Catholic background and, you know, um, Presbyterian background or, or whatever in a church. And so in our church growing up, my dad was, like I said, very open to different ideas. So we did Advent, um, and we did something very similar to a Monday Thursday service, which I didn't, well, that's not what we called it, but it was very similar the Thursday before Easter. And I love those things. Like though as a kid, as a teenager, those were some of my favorite things that we did all year. Um, But I, yeah. So you, so so to say there's a melting pot of traditions Mm -hmm. in your past, in your history, in your, you know, theological upbringing is probably a massive understatement. Yeah. Yeah. So you ended up with a, a Southern Baptist pastor father who practiced the church calendar. Right. In some very small ways. I mean, not all year, but just in, just Arkansas, in Alaska, in Alaska, right. <laughs> in Alaska. Right. Has anybody ever told you you have a unique story? <laughs> oh, I've never heard that. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. So that's, so that's kind of how it started. And then of course I had another, I had my other grandparents were Presbyterian and that grandmother worked at a Catholic school. And so I just had some different exposure you know, just being with them. And uh, the biggest thing that stuck out to me about the Presbyterian church is that when we had 
communion or the Lord's Supper, as I called it at that point. Um, and now I call it primarily Eucharist. But at that point, the Lord's Supper, they actually used real bread. And I think they even used real wine. And they had um, like banner hangings for the seasons. Like those are the things that stick out to me from a kid. And I just loved, I loved all of that. I especially love the real bread. I thought that was the nastiest thing. Instead of the little puffy wafers that the Baptist had. <laughs> Roots in our tradition, we tend to have the little chiclets. They're they're not puffy yes. anymore. They're very sort of hard and crunchy. Oh. They were they were puffy in the eighties. Yeah, they were they were a little more puffy. It was a better time. And as a, it was a better time. <laughs> and we had grape juice. And so, as the preacher's kid after the service, I would lead all the other kids down to the kitchen to finish off everything that had been left behind. <laughs> Oh man, some days there's nothing better than thinking about some cold Welch's grape juice. I know, mm. I know. Some good memories in the church yes. basement kitchen. I mean, that's just good memories. So with all those streams um, <laughs> yeah. that sort of converge in what you're doing now and who you are now, I mean, those mm-hmm. memories make you who you are. Um, how would you go about defining wisdom? Because you're mm. you're pulling from... You know, each of those streams has a, a thousand years or so. And I'm, I'm dragging a lot from Richard Foster talking about the streams yeah. of living water and the different spiritual traditions. W- what would be a beginning to a definition of wisdom for you? The, only, the, the first thing that comes to mind when you say the beginning of wisdom is just the word listen. Like I think wisdom begins in listening, whether it's the person receiving the wisdom or the person discerning the wisdom in order to share. Um, I don't think any wisdom is gained or imparted without the ability and the willingness to listen, like a, a posture of listening and not the assumption that we have all the answers or are responsible for coming up with all the answers or like, I think there's gotta be kind of a posture of listening. So I would say that's the beginning of wisdom. I wonder how that, so a lot of your work writing wise, and if people go to your website, which I'll link in the notes, a lot of the, the big theme that they see and that I see in you is, is this idea or concept or working with the idea of home. Mm-hmm. And home seems to be that place where in in an ideal circumstance or in a healthy circumstance, listening is just part of the of the goodness. Is that where that comes from for you? Or how does that home concept play in to this idea of listening and how that's where wisdom really begins? I think that's a good question. I think it does, um, especially as we're talking about kind of my roots and where I come from. I was the kid that didn't really want to go outside and play with the other kids. I wanted to sit at the table and listen to the adults. You know, that, that was that kid. I wanted to hear all the stories. I wanted to know what was going on. I mean, it wasn't just like, it wasn't all pure motive of just wanting to listen to the wisdom of the elders. Right. It was also nosiness. like was happening around me and I wanted to know all of that. And, um, and so I think I learned a lot from my grandmothers, especially from watching people interact, from listening to stories, from listening to things 
that people did that they shouldn't do. You know, I learned as much, maybe more from people's stories of when they have failed than when they have succeeded. Because I think success is highly personal, but failure is highly universal. Like, you know, and, um, and so I think that, and then also home is really, I mean, I guess it's not where everybody is the most anymore because of work and school, but your home, and and maybe this is an ideal situation, right? This doesn't apply to everybody, but, but home tends to be at least, if not the largest presence, the most consistent threat that you have, um, in your life and should always be the place where is it Anne Lamont who said something about home is the place where when you show up, they take you in anyway, like they have to let you in. <laughs> Somebody said something to that effect, right? Like that's where home is. It's our family, you know, it's where they have to let you in. And so, um, so I just think of it is, is if you pull back everything about your life, you kind of get to the essence of everything at home. And so, Yeah. So for you, what was the home that you grew up in, Mm -hmm. being a a child of a pastor, listening and learning from grandparents, listening and learning from failures? And I think that's that's so critical because so much of what we know and what we do is is coming out of gathered wisdom. It's Mm -hmm. stuff we've cobbled together over the years from people we've listened to. What was that? What was that like in your home growing up, moving around? Pastors' kids' lives are always mobile. Um, yes, you're in, you live in dozens of places or sixes of places or, or you know however half dozen places over your lifetime. How did that? How did that reflect in your own home growing up? Mm. Yeah, so we did. We moved around a lot, at least until we got to Juno. So I counted it up in a grand effort of martyrdom once a teenager maybe even as a young adult in therapy like how many times did you make me move you know (laughs) so I could have this number to show to my parents and I think if you count all the temporary stopping points like a like when we would stay in a house before another house was ready right like we'd have to live in between jobs or something and there'd be these little two-month stays here or there I think by the time I was 12 I had lived and I use air quotes with that in 12 places you know and then um we got to Juno and we stayed there for a while. I think listening and being listened to were really, really important in my growing up. My, my grandmother on my mom's side did a really great job of listening to me and making me feel like what I had to say mattered. And she would always tell me that I was wise. Oh, you're so wise. Why are you so wise? And I have no idea if I was actually wise or not. But that did so much for me um, to be seen. Like that was a way, being listened to was a way that I felt seen. And I even experienced that with different church members at these different churches that we would move from. I kind of always managed to find one or two adults. And that was really critical, um, I think, in my development. And in my feeling comfortable in church and feeling a part, feeling not like I was just an accessory to my parents, but that, that I was my own person and it's seen as my own person within the faith community. 
And I think that's part of why I'm such a church nerd to this day is because I, there, there always seemed to be one or two adults who would, who would seem again, I have no idea if <laughs> this is just the way they were really good with kids, but they made me feel like my opinions about what was happening in the church or my questions about God or my um, insights about faith were just as valid as any other adults. And so their listening to me, I think was as important as the listening I did to other people. So you're writing now and you're, you're coming out of that background. Mm-hmm. And as you come out of that background, the writing you're doing on home now seems to be looking forward, like starting from where mm-hmm. I am, I bring all this stuff into my own house and now I'm sort of writing forward. So a homemade life, you're really talking about the various things that go on within the environment of this launching pad. And then at home in this life, yeah. you know, you, the themes, people can hear that even before they read the book, that there's a, there's a connection between living, which I think has a lot to do with wisdom and this, mm-hmm. this safe space, this place of home. However, you also talk very realistically. Um, you talk about the word you use is beauty mess, beauty yeah. <laughs> and mess kind of slam together. Um, help, yes. help people step into that experience. What does that mean? What does that mean for mm-hmm. you? Yes. So coming out of my childhood, I had this idea that everything needed to, to, that you could all, that I had this idea coming out of my childhood that you could only experience one thing at a time. Um, and I don't know if that was the developmental thing or if that was just kind of the nature of some of the dynamics in our family. But I only thought that you could hold beauty or mess. You could only hold happiness or sadness and that you couldn't experience both of those things in the same place. Or if you did, something was wrong. <laughs> like they were going to compete for each other or any sadness was going to completely obliterate any happiness. Um, and once I had kids, that kind of, that idea, I, I it, no, it didn't support the life I was living anymore, right? It was like the scaffolding that completely fell apart. And um, because kids are both beautiful and difficult, they are just an, a magical experience and the hardest, most exhausting, frustrating thing I've ever done. So <laughs> I... I had to make peace with both the hard and the beautiful being in the same hand. And that's where beauty mess came from. This idea that we live at this intersection of all the beautiful moments in our life and all of the messy moments in our life. And sometimes one gives birth to the other. And sometimes you can only see one because of the contrast of the other. Um, And that they don't cancel each other out, but that you have to embrace the lessons of both and that they are only um, that there's a depth that you can find in both of them when they're together that you can't find when they're apart. So if you kind of only try to live on the top, you know, 5% of your life and keep everything really perfect and beautiful and, and looking pristine and socially acceptable or, you know, just you know, checking off the marks of what a good person or a good Christian looks like, you're not you're only going to go so deep, right? Your, your spiritual development, your spiritual growth is only going to go so deep. 
When on the other hand, if you only stay in the mess, if you kind of only, if you can't kind of find a way to find beauty in your life and you're too concentrated in the mess, Erin Nequest and I talk about this about, you know, you can't lament all year. (laughs) You can't only live in lament. Like, Now, lament's really important, and in some traditions, we have left out lament as Christians. We've completely done away with lament. And in other, and so the pendulum, you know, the uh, attraction is to maybe go too far in lament. But if you only live in lament, I mean, man, that's just, you're going to be depressed and sad, and nobody's going to want to play with you. So (laughs) you've got to have both. You have to be able to acknowledge both and you've got to be able to learn from both. And, um, that's what I try to look at. And that's, that's, that's what we try to raise our kids within that tension, within that idea of it's both. And, um, you have to not be afraid of either. You, you can't, you cannot be afraid of risking beauty because you're afraid you're going to fail and be hurt. And you can't be afraid to step out of your comfortable Eeyore-ness and risk beauty. Like you've got to have both. You need to be brave in both areas of your life. And, um, we try to create an environment. I think that's why I write about home a lot because I think home, if you can do that at home, you can do that anywhere. (laughs) When it's interesting, you alluded to Aaron and lament and you and I met at a retreat, uh, for the practice, which is, uh, Mm -hmm. really a liturgically based community, formation community. And you were talking about the church calendar. That was what you presented on. Do you feel like the reason that, and of course this is so broad brush, it's one of those questions like everything comes down to this, but um, there's a great deal of issues within us as people, but also within churches in general, because we can't do both and. And yet the church calendar presses us to do both ends. Talk about how, what is the poverty we experience without mm. having the both and of this thing called the church calendar or the liturgical calendar? Yeah. So the liturgical calendar was the first thing. I mean, I experienced different things about the liturgical calendar as a child, like I mentioned, and, and growing up when I really started studying the church calendar and the wisdom of the church calendar. And I started living it not as a liturgical person yet, like not as an Episcopalian, but, um, I started just noticing the, the depth and the rootedness that, um, started to bloom in my life. And part of it is because the calendar does not let you rest in one season for too long. Um, there are seasons of celebration and there are seasons of lament. And then there's this really wide open season. This big, the biggest season actually of the calendar year is not celebrating Christ's birth or Christ's death and resurrection. And it's not lamenting, um, our, you know, poverty of, of the soul, but it's what's called ordinary time. And that is literally like, the time when we are to work out and live out what it means to be following Christ, which is really about your everyday. So the largest chunk is just everyday life. Like, like what discipleship I think is supposed to actually be like, how are you actually living your life? What then shall we do? You know, how shall we then live? Um, is the biggest chunk, which I thought was really interesting because it takes it off a mountaintop experience. Like the point 
of living a Christian life is not to live on the mountaintop, right? Um, and it's also not to live like in the dregs all the time of, of how awful sinners we are. Um, because then the whole point becomes us again, <laughs> like our awfulness becomes our focus, which then makes it all about us. Um, and if you live on the mountaintop too much, then it's just all about how I feel. And that again becomes all about us. Um, Phyllis Tickle, who's a wonderful writer and uh, mentor, she passed away a few years ago, but she said that basically if you only live on the mountaintop, if you only do the celebrating, it's like eating icing (laughs) and you can't live on a diet of icy, right? And you can't, you know, and if you just live in the pit, it's like eating twigs. I mean, you, you know, nobody wants to eat like Melba toast indefinitely. Like you just, and so you can't only live on a diet of one or the other, or, and you can, you cannot also just live on the diet of those two things, yeah. of vacillating between those two things. Um, yeah, so because in, you're, you're not going to get any nutrients. <laughs> so in the church calendar, you get, you get things like for, if somebody's listening, they don't know. So mm-hmm. it's the setup of the year and right. it sets the year up along with, you know, along the line of the story of humanity through the scriptures and Easter, Christmas, I mean, the big Christian holidays, but there's also Lent, Advent, Ordinary Time, Epiphany. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's sort of, it's the calendar that Christians used before we have the calendar we have now. So the whole year was not mapped by January through December, but it was mapped from, you know, the beginning of the year through uh, through the coming back around to, it was more circular. It feels like. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's a circular, it's a circular calendar. It starts with Advent. So the Christian year starts with Advent, which is, uh, Advent is the four Sundays before Christmas day. So, um, so it doesn't always, generally it starts right after Thanksgiving, but depending on how the Sundays fall, um, it, it changes it. So this year, Christmas Eve and the last Sunday of Advent were the same day, which was tricky for us liturgical people. Um, <laughs> planning our services that day a little tricky uh, because there's different liturgies for Christmas Eve and the last Sunday of Advent. Um, so, right. So it's, a, it's, it's cyclical and you go through the first six months of the year are the story of Christ's life. So that's how you move from Advent. So you move from when um, the angel came and told Mary she was going to have a baby. And then you move all the way through Christ's death and resurrection and the falling of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. So that's the first half of the year. So you're learning about Christ's life and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then the second half of the year from after Pentecost until you come back around to Advent is then you, you are living out the examples, the teachings, you're, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit, essentially the Holy Spirit has fallen on you and you are now to live out like Christ and so all of the, the readings, the feast day, the scriptures, the prayers, everything in that season reflects how we are to live um, now that we are following Christ. And then the other half of the year is informing us of how Christ lived. And of course, the Holy Spirit is with us all the time. Christ has died and risen for all the time. But so it's not to say that you know, we're only saying you have the gift of the Holy Spirit for half the year, but just as far as, um, reminders of how to live. What I love about it is it puts things, we are so on demand today. 
and mm-hmm. it puts things in a context in which they're accessible at a certain time so that not only, A, do we learn how to treasure them. I mean, there's a reason Christmas is so special is because you really don't do it in July. I don't care what the retailers say. Christmas in July. Come on. Uh, You do it once a year. You do, you wear things, you eat things, you, it's all very unique and special. So what, here's what, in the last few minutes we have, this is what I thought was most interesting about you. So you took I intentionally started with the home stuff and moved to the liturgical stuff because what you did was you took the beauty mess idea. You kind of came to your life in at home, your life as a parent, your life as a wife, and you saw that some of your expectations were frustrated or yes. not fulfilled. But you brought this idea of spiritual practices into your home as a way of, okay, Yes. So it's a, it's a both and kind of moment, right? And if I'm mistelling any of this, correct me, but no, no, that's right. That's great. You saw that the, these, some of these expectations weren't going to be fulfilled. So that's kind of the mess, but you didn't just give in and say, there isn't any beauty to this. You brought these Mm -hmm. spiritual practices. So uh, take people into what that looks like, because on the one hand, you know, some of my listeners grew up Catholic and have moved to an evangelical tradition. And so Mm -hmm. they're saying, Hey, wait a minute. That's the stuff I left behind because for whatever reason, or some of them grew right, up evangelical right. and moved to a more liturgical tradition and have said, oh, that's the thing that drew me there. But for both of those groups of people, what I would hate for them to miss is that it actually has implications outside of whatever cathedral or church you attend. Mm-hmm. So bring bring them into your house for a second and maybe give them a one of those practices that you talk about that was kind of a meeting of the both and. Yeah, yes, yes. That's that's exactly right. It the great thing about the liturgical calendar is that it's accessible for everyone. You don't have to be part of a tradition that is honoring it. It is very easy to honor at home. There are a lot of resources out there. Um and there's several that we do on the regularly, but we don't do all of them every year. And that's the other thing I like to tell people is there are hundreds of feast days and different traditions that you could do, but you're going to find a few that really resonate with your family probably, and those are the ones that you should do. Um, You know, we do an Advent wreath, and I tell everybody, we do an Advent wreath, but it took 10 years for it to not feel awkward um, (laughs) because we do it once a year. And so how is it going to feel normal? You know, it was a new tradition. We started when my youngest was a toddler. I have a picture of him standing on the table. And that's the other thing, like, when you start doing these things, people are not going to behave, right? So I have a toddler standing on the table trying to blow out candles. We're trying to like be serious and read these scriptures and the kids are fighting over who's going to get to light the candle. And and it's just a mess. That's the mess part. The mess part is nobody's going to act like this is a holy moment (laughs) when you try to do these things at your house. They are not. Unless you have like that kind of kid. And maybe you have that kind of kid who's like, this is a holy moment. Everybody act right. Um, which is also its own kind of mess because then you have a bossy child. So you, you just, but what it does is it starts to grow this root. It starts to grow this connection to the faith so that when that 12 year, when that 10 year old is 12, um, it's no longer weird or awkward and they start to get it. And maybe they even bring it up and they say, Hey, are we going to do the advent wreath? Like just the year that you're like, we're not doing it anymore. I'm tired of fighting these people. I'm tired of the eye rolling or the fighting or the lighting. Um, 
you have to keep on because it is really creating this connection to faith. And it's creating the idea, I think, that faith is not this instantaneous quick fix, that it happens in the middle of our messy lives and that it is worth fighting for and that it will always be there whatever stage you're at, Um, which I think is a lovely gift that the liturgical calendar can give. You know, we have a lot of evangelicals coming to our church now and I'm in a, at an Episcopal church and we had St. Francis. We do the Feast of St. Francis and we do a dog blessing and, you know, or pet blessing and a dog wash and all these different things. And I had a new member. He was so upset that he wasn't going to be able to come because of work. And I said, don't worry, we'll do it again next year. And he like the look of relief on his face because it wasn't just this thing we were doing this year to be cool. Like St. Francis comes around every year just like Christmas comes around every year, just like Easter comes around every year, you will have the chance again to enter this moment. And, you know, there have been Advents where I have been very stressed out or Christmases where I have been so stressed out or too overworked or too sick. And the beauty is this is not the only chance I get to have Advent or Christmas. Like, we can do this again next year. We can try again next year. We can get, you know, maybe I only did the Advent wreath twice this year. It's not a fail. Maybe it failed at Advent. It's going to come back again. (laughs) And so there's this, this beautiful um, relief that comes when you don't realize that you have to make every experience the perfect experience because we get a do-over every year. And that's perfect. That is a perfect way to address the beautiful and the messy Yeah, is this idea of it's, it's, it's in some ways, I mean, I don't over spiritualize it a little bit, but it is the idea of redemption and grace. So you have to give yourself grace even within the church calendar. And, and I think that's reassuring for people who are listening, who did not find that in their families growing up, you know, if you had a steak on a Friday, Oh, oh no, boy! This is bad, yeah. bad news bears. So, <laughs> I, I think what I hear and what's beautiful about what you're saying is, is there is grace within it, and the grace is actually the point. Yes, the practice is yes. just a channel. It's just a container. Um, yes, to help you understand how all of this it really is. It really does fit. It's not objectionable to God. This is actually part of the whole the whole experience. Yeah, yeah. You're literally, I mean, all spiritual practices are, well, first of all, they're called spiritual practices, not perfections for a reason, because you're not supposed to be perfect at them to begin with or ever. You're supposed to practice, which means you're probably going to be really bad in the beginning. Um, and, and it's going to hurt for a while, like doing push-ups or something, right? Like it's, you're going to stretch and it's not going to feel natural or normal. And that is not a sign that you're doing the wrong thing. It's just a sign that you're growing. And that this is new. And so it is, it's totally built with, with redemption and grace just woven within it because none of us are going to get any of these spiritual practices right 100% of the time. Um, and that can't be our motivation for doing them either, like to be perfect at this, right? Yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing all this with us. Thanks for sharing your your beauty mess with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I am so glad to be here, and it was 
fun to see you again. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to include some notes where people can find your uh, talks and where they can find your books and things like that. But, But thanks again for being on. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. And I know what you're doing right now. You're already trying to spell butamess, aren't you? Jerusalem Greer, author, um, blogger, man, such an interesting story. How she jumped around and found home no matter what, um, and now finds home in Arkansas. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Those of you who subscribe, thank you so much for doing that. That is amazing. It helps me understand and know uh, where people are coming from. I'm, I'm always interested in hearing what you would like to hear. If there are conversations, if there are topics, you can always contact me through my website, caseytigret.com. You can also follow the show. We have social media uh, at otherwisepod. That's at otherwise pod both on instagram and the twitters you can uh, find those there Uh, you can also find a bunch of other stuff on the website including uh, i do a blog every week if you'd like to subscribe to that that would be great if you haven't subscribed to the podcast and you are listening on a regular basis i would really encourage you to do that Uh, it helps me to know uh, who's listening and why and where and also how to make better episodes because listen here's the deal Uh, I know that I need to get better at this. And so the way that that happens is by you letting me know, hey, that was kind of weird or hey, that was really good. And so we can continue to work on that. Well, that's the way something sounds or uh, the guests or whatever it might be. So I'm looking forward to next week's episode uh, as we plunge through the summer here. I hope you're having a great summer. Hope you're enjoying this. Don't forget to share this with someone who may want to hear it. So... Until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends.